Hey everyone, it's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio, and today is super cool because I have an amazing artist on the hook with me. My guest this evening is a founding member of one of the greatest bands to hail from the great state of Louisiana. He is a multi-instrumentalist, a prolific and revered Nashville songwriter, and was an inductee into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame back in 2009. We will take a ride down to Thibodeau, Louisiana and visit with my friend, Tony Hazelden of the rock band LaRue when we come back. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Tony Hazelden, what's going on, my man? How are you this evening? We're doing absolutely wonderful this evening. It seems like every day goes by and it's a good day, so I know the plan. They say that, I guess, every day above ground is a good day, right? Amen. It's certainly a treat for me to get the opportunity to visit with you this evening. I've been a a longtime fan of LaRue's music, probably longer than I I really want to discuss in this conversation. But uh, (laughs) nevertheless, I wanted to give a quick shout out and thank you to to Mark Duthu from your band, the percussionist for LaRue, for kind of getting all of this ironed out and set up. He's been a a wonderful person to interact with and he's very responsive and it's, he certainly made my life easy and getting in front of you. So thanks Mark for that. And thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time. Oh man, it's a pleasure to be here. And Mark is the guy. He's a wonderful musician and he's uh, unlike many musicians. He's very efficient and prompt, so I think I thank him for that too. He's made made both of our lives easy. Yeah, uh, there, there's always got to be one of those efficient people in the band, right? Because most <laughs> most musicians, like you said earlier, are, are a little lacking sometimes in that efficiency department. Right? Oh, really? <laughs> what, what time is it? What town are we? In? Exactly. Okay. You never know. You never know. So I'll tell you that I discovered Larue. I think I was on a weekend trip probably to Lafayette, Louisiana, sometime around, gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to guess 82, 83, a sophomore in high school. And I'm going back to Lafayette from Washington, Texas with a friend of mine that his dad was a a well-known urologist in, in Lafayette and Scott was a good buddy of mine. And he said, man, you got to hear this band. They're really, really good. And so that was my first introduction in a van driving down Interstate 10 to Louisiana's LaRue. And I've been a, I've been a fan ever since. So thanks for all the music along the way. Well, we had a good time doing it. You've heard the band about the time we had morphed into a more of a rock band about 82 in that era. Before that, we were, I'm not sure exactly where we fit in the scheme of things. Uh, early on, it was... It wasn't necessarily Cajun, it wasn't necessarily Southern, it wasn't necessarily funk, but it was a collage of all that. And about 82 in that era, in that time, sorry, before that, we kind of turned into a, a quote, rock band a la Journey or Foreigner, one of those kinds. And, and yeah, our band has always had a, a deep palette for, for a broad palette for any kind of music. So, yeah, you heard the rock blue. 
Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about your music or LaRue's music, I should say, around that time here shortly. But today you make Thibodeau home, correct? You're in Thibodeau, Louisiana these days, right? Yeah. Moved back about almost five years ago. Um, Stayed in Nashville for 30 years and moved back here. And, uh, you know, I love it. Louisiana is, I mean, unique into all the 50 states. There's there's nothing like, like the South, especially South Louisiana. So I'm glad to be back. Sure. I, I agree with you there. I've uh, lived in several places, but I went to college at USL. Of course, when they called it USL in Lafayette, yeah. I was a raging Cajun back in the day. And uh, Mark and I have that in common. We're both uh, alumni of the University of Louisiana uh, at Lafayette. So, But I think you're not originally uh, born and raised in Louisiana. I think you're from somewhere on the East Coast, South Carolina or the Carolina somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, originally from South Carolina, so I'm from South Carolina. And my dad uh, was in construction. We moved a lot of different places. But over the years, I've probably been in Louisiana from off and on since 1957. So, okay. I'll give you, uh, I won't tell you how old I was in 1957, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm uh, slow with yeah. math, so I'm not going to try to guess either. So, so. Yeah, don't, <laughs> you're, don't you're in good that. luck. Yeah, but the, yeah, I, I consider Louisiana all. Yeah, all my family's from South Carolina. I don't really have any family in Louisiana other than my wife and my daughter. She lives in Denver now, so it's just us two. But yeah, Louisiana, you can't. You just there's no substitute. Yeah. There's Southern charm in Louisiana for sure. And the, and the Cajuns are a, a unique bunch of people. And, and I've fallen in love with many of them over the years. Uh, my wife is uh, from New Orleans, from, from Harahan. So, wow. yeah, I have a New Orleans lady right here in the house. Yes, you do. So Lucky man. what were you, what were you listening to as a, as a kid? You know, you're, you're coming up, you're, you're starting to, hear music, listen to music, who turned you on to music and what were you listening to when you really got influenced by it? You know, I don't really, there's no, no musical history in my family. There were no, my mom could sing at church. Um, you know, we were the standard Baptist, everybody sang. And if you couldn't sing, you made a joyful noise. It's one of those situations. But as far as, I guess I got a guitar um, when I was about maybe, maybe 12, well, closer to 13. And I played trombone in high school band in college, which is like, you know, you couldn't get any nerdier than that. They should play tuba. So, uh, but, so I always played guitar. And uh, the people that I learned, I joined the Navy right out of high school. And there was a guy on board that had gone, a piano player that had gone to school in Berkeley in Boston. And there was another guy from Minnesota that played guitar. I remember he had a red a guitar exactly like B.B. King's, except it was a red. So anyway, I started playing. And so we learned, I learned, I had three years of that. I learned a lot in that situation. Okay. That was my first exposure to And oddly enough, my favorite guitar players back then were, were uh, Chet Atkins and Richie Blackmore. If you can imagine that combination. Wow, that's eclectic. <laughs> it, it, it definitely covers a lot of ground. But... Um, so that's where that most of that came from, and along the way, I would meet other people. I, I think it's always valuable to be uh, the worst guitar player in the room because man, that leaves you a lot to learn. Absolutely, so I've always managed to find some great players. That uh, and if you can't find a great player on YouTube now, you just need you need to go quit. You're not looking hard enough, right? 
yeah, they're all out there. So it's always a growth potential. I've, I've said that as well over the years, no matter what you do, you always want to align yourself with, with better people, right? Because then you tend to, our humanness is to step your game up and try to yeah. get to that level versus regressing and going back to, you know, being worse than yeah, you yeah. already are. You don't want to go backwards yeah. in life. You want to move yeah. forward. Yeah. You're doing something you've already known how to do for the past 15 years. Well, I don't have far to go. All I have to do is turn my head to the left and look at the or the car player. I, I get all the information I need. <laughs> I, need to start tape. I need to start taping him and learn what he does. But we don't want to support sound the same. But, yeah, he's a he's an absolute monster. He's uh, birthday schooled and and, uh, and thank goodness it didn't affect his play and just made him better. Sure. So, sometimes you get stupid, but he's just, you know, he, I, 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 I listen to him and he's one of my favorite players. Thank goodness to be on stage with him is even better. Yes. Now you mentioned trombone in high school. Where did trombone come from in the grand scheme of choosing an instrument? Was that something that somebody said, hey, this is what you get to play, Tony? Or or did you actually have a say in that deal? Well, they all they were, you know, back then uh, they would they would they would they would they'd give you a mouth, they would check your embouchure, the way that you held your mouth. And uh they would either say, well, you, you'll play a woodwind or you'll play trump or you'll play baritone or whatever. So that, at least that's the excuse they said. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody just needed a trombone player. Right. And then I played for one year and then I was going to quit. And the band director said, well, I'll let, I'll let you keep playing guitar in the jazz band and play trombone in, in, the, in the concert band and the marching all through junior high school. And then same thing in college. Trombone was just... That was what they held over my head. Guitar and the jazz band is what they held over my head. That okay. was the carrot, right? That was the carrot. That was the, that was the carrot, exactly. Right. Yep, yep. And how long after high school was it that birth was given to LaRue? Well, I, we, I was been out, in and out of music for a long time. I mean, I graduated. I'll give it away. And that's when we got, I graduated 63. So okay. LaRue didn't really start. Actually, our first album started to come together around 76. And I'll try to give you a, a quick synopsis. I graduated from college, got a useless degree in psychology, and I started on my master's. And LaRue came down to play at the college. And I had played with all of the, all of everybody in the band in a different configuration, another other bands. But I said, well, I'm done with music. I'll go back to school. I'll go back to school. So anyway, they came down. And uh, said, go get, your, go get your guitar, come jam with us. So um, I did. We played, and they went home about two, two in the morning. Uh, Jeff Pollard, who was another magnificent singer, player, writer, just everything, he called up and said, Man, you need to join the band. And I'm thinking, well, You know, I'm not really, I kind of got out of the music vibe. And so my wife, being the wonderful wife that she is, said, Give it a shot. We got one. We were getting ready to go showcase in LA. So that's that all kind of came together totally unconscious. I, I, I have I kind of just walked through life and stumbled onto these wonderful opportunities, I suppose. Wow. And so talk to me just briefly about, you know, before LaRue as we knew it, I think that LaRue went through some name changes prior to becoming what we know as LaRue today. Can you hit that at a high level? Who were you before and why the name changes and whatnot? Well, Rod, who's who's an original member of LaRue and still is, still plays keyboard on LaRue, and Jeff Pollard 
came down to Thibodeau, my father-in-law on the night club down there. So we became the house band. And um, it was a band called the Levy Band at that time. So we did that for, I'm not good at, at, at years. We probably did that for a year and a half or something like that. I got out of the band to go back to school. So I, I did. And they moved to Baton Rouge, most of them, Rod and Jeff. And they started a band called the Jeff Pollard Band. And um, joined with Leon Medica, wonderful bass player, and um, David Peters, the, with the original drummer with the root for, for uh, all the albums. And uh, that's the band. The Jeff Pollard band is the band that came to Nichols and said, come Jeff, come jam with us. So we knew each other, we had all played it. So I guess all of that happened over a period of probably about three and a half to four years. Like once, once again, I say the exact years I I can't recall, but there was a space in between there when I finished school, or that probably took between, and then uh, then it just kind of fell in the place from there. So LaRue has always been a group of, of top shelf musicians. And I, I think most all of you guys have pretty extensive singing capabilities as well. Was there anybody in any of the lineups over the years that really you guys didn't think of much as a singer. They were truly there as for their musicianship and not their vocals. You know, everybody, everybody in the band now and does vocals, everybody. Well, back then, uh, Jeff sang, Rod sang, I sang, and um, Bobby uh, Campbell sang. So there were four, and we're all, we all, whether we had lead vocal, lead vocal capability or not, we were we all sang in tune. We all had great meter and great and great pitch. So, uh, I mean, at the risk of sacrificing modesty, yeah, it was right. It was the vocals were always good, and the musicianship. You know, everybody really wanted to do their best. Everybody fed off of each other. You know, we it, it always had been a good band, and, and still is great band. I think that there, there's a common denominator with the bands, especially the the bands from the 70s. It seems like a lot of what I was listening to as a young kid and really getting into mid 70s, late 70s, uh, that that common denominator was a lot of them were really top shelf musicians and they all had wonderful vocals. They were all capable, very capable of singing, you know, you had the bands like Poco and, you know, the, of course the Eagles oh, from yeah. back then. And, you know, I mean, I could, I could sit here and try to think of a million names, oh, still, but and young, all that. yeah. And that's really, that was the formative years for me when I started really getting into music because they were all playing their own instruments. Whereas a lot of people, you know, later on down the road, it was all, it got into the techno or the synthesizer yeah. and, programming and it, it took a lot of the real out of the music. So, you know, back, back in the day, the, the musicians were just that they were musicians and vocalists first. And, well, they, and they had to be because just like you said, they played on their own album. Yes. You know I mean? We, you, you had, you had to be a player or you wouldn't get in the band. <laughs> exactly. That was a prerequisite to be in a band was to be a musician, right? Well, back then it was a meritocracy. If you could cut it, you'd say, yeah. if you can't, then you'll have to find another place or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, there wasn't any, if you did call in somebody as a guest, we had a guest on a couple albums. David Pack came in and played on one of our albums. Uh, we had a horn player come in on one. But, but we, everything that you hear, 
on any of the Rue album is purely the Rue. So, and that was a trademark in the seventies. Yeah, you, you know, it's like play or go home, pretty much. Yes. Now, we'll get back to this, but you're an award-winning songwriter. And again, yeah, we'll talk more about that shortly. But uh, you have a bandmate and guitarist, Jim Odom. I don't believe he was an original member of the band, but, you know, we talk about musicianship. He was a Berkeley alumni, right? And, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and studied music at Berkeley and then I think went on and, and founded what we know as uh, PreSonus Audio today, correct? Without a doubt, he is. He's a, he's a, uh, to me, he's a renaissance man. I, I tell him that all the time. Um, if I, you know, there's a, a handful of lists of people that I would clone if I can start, and he would be up in the top 10. With really? Because he's just, he's just one of those guys. He's a great player. He, he, he works great with people. He knows how to get the best out of other folks. And uh, we, we write great together. He's, uh, I, I'm probably, I'm probably 70 or 80% lyrics, and he's probably, you know, seventy percent music. He just, wow. you know, he finds places on the instrument that that I don't I don't normally go to. There, you know, sometimes some of the songs I do a lot of the music, a lot of, but a lot of most of the music is him. He just has a he has a facility and a creative mind that just just uh, places that I wouldn't normally go. Sure, it's a good kind. It's been a real good combination. Well, and I think that that's what makes a successful band, right? Where you where you leave off or you don't go, then there's somebody there to go for you. And it's, I guess we called it picking each other up. And uh, I think that, you know, that's his role and that's your role when he's trying to fill a gap, right? You're there to do that for him too, it sounds like. Yeah, and we, you know, we both, well, you know, it's one of those things where if you, uh, my grandpa used to say, if you're doing the same thing as somebody else, one of y'all is unnecessary. That's kind of thing, even in the workforce, yeah. <laughs> unless you're working that fashion, duplication and, and, and creativity doesn't seem to work well. It's just, uh, yeah. Uh, you have to, everybody has to pick up their slack and find their, and find their place. I agree. What they can, what they can contribute the most. Yeah. Cause um, at, at the end of the day, LaRue doesn't need two Tonys, right? I mean. No, they don't, they don't need two Tonys. Yeah. In fact, I can't think of anyone who needs two Tonys. <laughs> Well, I wasn't really setting you up for that, but since you, <laughs> since you went there, I'll, I'll just let you yeah. go, right? Yeah, go ahead and hang with that. So, yeah. yeah, so I didn't realize until I started doing a little homework, I've heard of PreSonus for, for years and years and years being a musician. When I'm reading here, it's like Jim Odom, the founder of PreSonus, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, never, I never knew this. I had no idea that, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time was the founder of a company that's been in business over 25 years and, and, and is a technology leader in the, in the musical industry. Oh, yeah, and he's not just... He's just not uh, at the head of the company. He's an electronic. He knows the electronics. He knows how that stuff works. Wow. It's not just uh, let me know. I mean, he, you know, he's got both computer and electronics degrees. He knows how, that's why I say he's a renaissance. He, he does great business. He does great technical work. He's creative in music. He's just an overall nice guy. So, yeah, he he's kind of like our our Louisiana Elon Musk. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, even if Jim's listening, I'm sure he'll, he'll laugh, but you know, even if he did stink at guitar, at least you could use his other skills in the band. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if he had, I mean, I think he likes playing guitar. I think guitar provides him less headaches, but he gets a lot more from personas. Sure. So, 
How much time would you say that, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on Jim, I'm, I'm chatting with you, of course, but mm-hmm. how does he balance out the time with between the company and LaRue as a professional musician? Is it a, is it a 50-50? Is it a 70-30 split? What do you, what do you think there? No, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a, somehow, I don't know if there's a split at all. There's a, somehow he has the ability to multitask. Yeah. You know, and the company is a huge worldwide international. <laughs> it's a big, big deal. Um, he has the ability to multitask. And the, the other thing, the music is so natural to him. It's not like it does. It's, that part is almost effortless. So as far as as far as it ha- that doesn't take him as long to discover things musically as some people. He doesn't have to work at that so much. It just wow. kind of pops out. He is such a master of the instrument. It just kind of pops out. And and you know and and most of our guys, uh, they're they're all like that. They know the instruments the instruments so well. Yeah, I always tease them. I'm going, man. You guys actually know what y'all are playing. <laughs> you know the names of all that stuff, and it is. It's a it's a it's a band who who understands what they're doing. And Jim, I don't know how. I have no idea how he does all the stuff he does. But um, you know, he just well, all of them are amazing. I mean, that I think that that's spoken in LaRue's music over the years, but just, uh, I guess, a quick shameless plug for, for Presonus Audio there. These, these are guys that build tools for musicians, content creators, producers, and audio engineers. So I think you can buy all of their stuff on Sweetwater and, you know, oh, everywhere. Uh, they're everywhere, right? So yeah, any delivery. So I don't know, I, I don't know how many countries I might, I may have this wrong, Jim, but I see. Something like sixty or seventy countries. Oh, I'm sure. More. Yeah, they're they're, they're definitely but, global. Yeah. yeah so you won't have a hard time finding. It. Yep. Back in the day, were you not a studio musician down in Bogalusa at studio in the country? Do I have my facts wrong, or am I right there? No, you're you're right. The, the original band did started off doing a lot of studio work for just you know custom sessions and stuff like that, and um, that's how. That was that was always a lot of fun too, you know. In this band, he, under every circumstance, from, from playing clubs and studio work, and you know, we've always gotten along great. I can't remember us ever having any like big arguments or anything. It's just so, uh, and studio work was was fun for us because everybody was capable. So yes. we had a great time doing that. Yeah, we talked a little bit before we hit the record button about going down in the, the, the rabbit hole with YouTube, I stumbled across a guy that is a session drum. I don't know if it's, if he's still a session drummer at studio in the country or when this video was shot, but it shows him collaborating with like 10 guys in the studio and the terminology that, I mean, he is so efficient as a studio musician. Do this, yeah. do this, do this, do this. Time is money at the end of the day, right? And I mean, yeah. these guys are getting it done. And even as a musician, I didn't know what the hell these guys were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really, really intriguing to watch these guys work yeah. professionally. Yeah, watching a professional at any at any skill, whether it's welding or or guitar playing or whatever, watching a professional work is just you can you can tell the difference. Sure, it's an obvious it's an obvious difference. That's right. 
So for those that don't know, and, and Tony, you can in anywhere in here, you can fact check me and tell me if I'm off base. But I think studio in the country is a is just a, a studio that's just that. It's a studio out in the middle of basically nowhere in Bogalusa, Louisiana. That's what would you say about 50, 60 miles north of New Orleans? Is that right? Probably, probably in that area. Okay. It's always been a world, a Westlake studio. I mean, it was as good as any studio we ever worked at in L.A. Yeah. And, uh, and the good news was, I mean, you know, we would have food catered in. We wouldn't leave the property for a couple of weeks. You know, wow. just, and there was nothing, there was nothing to do but play music. So you'd play music, eat, play music, sleep, you know, yes. it was, it's a, and there was no distractions. We recorded one album in LA and that wasn't near as much fun. There was just so much other stuff to do. Part of it was fun. Part of it was just like, not I mean, a little more distracting, but, uh, that's, uh, Great place. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because I watched a little documentary on studio in the country the other day. And I, that's what I love about this show that I've created. I've always been this music junkie and I've always gone and bought the albums and was the geek that didn't even listen to the music first. I read the freaking liner notes because that yeah. stuff just interested me. And um, so I'm watching this documentary and I had a, you know, kind of pre the documentary, I had an interview with Randy Jackson of Zebra and their debut album was recorded at Studio in the Country, which is where I heard of Studio in the Country the first time. And then as I'm looking into things for for you and my conversation with you, I see that there's ties to you for the studio, but I didn't realize in this documentary that the leftover tour record by Kansas was recorded there. I think nitty gritty dirt band recorded the, an American dream record there. I played, I played on that record. Did you really? On American. I did the solo on American dream. No kidding. But with the chimes and everything, in fact, our whole band played, I think we did two songs on that record. I can't remember what the, and we did a, and we did one of the songs on, uh, one of the TV shows, not not Don Kirshner, Midnight Special, with the Dirt Band, uh, with the I, can't, I forget the titles, but the one that uh, American Dream is. Uh, we did that at Studio in the Country. I mean, Stevie Wonder recorded that. Yeah, people recorded it. I mean, it, like I said, it's odd to have a state of the art, LA flat quality studio in Bogalusa, Louisiana. Yeah, I- it was just. Uh, it's a great I think it was Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. That album was the album that, right. that Stevie Wonder did there. I think you I think you're right. Your memory's better than mine. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but but thank but thank you for the props all the same. But this is also where you guys recorded New Orleans Lady, which is which is probably one of the most well known songs by LaRue. It is the most it is the most well-known song. Obviously, you know, uh, Louisiana, uh, if you ask anybody, you know, that song was number one from from Louisiana all the way up the coast, all the way up to Virginia. I mean, for weeks. I mean, in South Carolina and Georgia and Florida, Midwest, that was a whole other thing. So it was an odd timing. There were places it'd be number one and then it wouldn't be heard here. It was just, but if you ask anybody about LaRue, that's the first song they'll bring up. And it was a wonderful song. Leon wrote that, Leon Medica and uh, Hoyt Garrett. Yes, and we're going to take a listen to that in just a second. 
but if we chatted about, well, I wanted to, let me take one step back and then we're going to come back to talking about uh, the song and, and the discography, but sure. you guys named the band LaRue, which I know in French, what Rue is the, the gravy, yeah. right. But where did sure. the name come from? Like who came up with that and, and why did LaRue stick? I could, I could be, well, LaRue, the rule will stick if you let it burn. It. <laughs> For sure. No <laughs> pun intended, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but what is, I think Leon came up with the name. I'm not sure, but I believe he did. I mean, as soon as we heard it, it, was, it, it, it you know, even if you don't know what a rue is, the rue sounded a certain, sounds fairly exotic. Yeah, sure. It, it made us sound like we were smart. <laughs> uh, uh, and in the Louisiana thing, they wanted us to check my memory on this, but they wanted us to drop the Louisiana thing because that, that kind of thing never works. And we said, Oh, you mean it, it sounds regional? Or, oh, you mean like Chicago or Boston? Kansas. Or, or those things never work. Kansas yeah. never work. But anyhow, so that went on for a while. Interesting. But, uh, I think Leon came up with that name, and, and it was it was unanimous pretty much once we decided because that's what we are. I had asked uh, Randy Jackson of Zebra the same question about the the band name, and he said, "Well, we were sitting in a bar, and I think if my memory serves me correctly, he said I think the place was called the Bus, and we're sitting there. We needed a name for the band, and they looked up, and there was a picture on the wall of uh, a 1922." like around the 22 era of this female that dressed up and she was riding a zebra and they said, well, why not zebra? And I said, well, that's kind of cool. He's like, yeah, well, if we, I guess if we didn't figure it out in there, we would have walked out and saw a bus and we might've been called the bus, you know, I mean, you just never know where the band name's going to come from, but. And you can think alcohol. Ball, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. They're, so if they're, it, they're, they're great. Yep. And if you, if we move forward a little bit to the discography, so back in 78, it was Louisiana's LaRue uh, was the 78 release. And you guys had a couple of uh, great songs off that record. I think mm-hmm. take a ride on the river boat was on there. And then of course the one you spoke of new Orleans lady was ladies was on that release as well. Right mm-hmm. now, that song became an anthem, I think, for you guys. And there was a magazine, I think it was called Gambit Magazine, that voted the song Song of the Century uh, was the uh, accolade that it gave the song, which is pretty powerful for anybody to say, you know, you've written the song of the, the century. That's, that's a nice accolade for somebody to, to, to say about your song. Would you agree? That's the one. Nobody would put, nobody would not enjoy having it said. Uh, I mean, uh, and, it, and in Louisiana, it really has been one of those kind of songs. Everybody knows that song, you know. I agree. And when I first met my wife, I took the song. I think I had this, I was going to say CD, but I don't even think CDs were up. Maybe they were, I don't know. But I had it on cassette tape. And I gave her when we first started dating the cassette tape. And I said, you know, my dedication to you is New Orleans ladies, the song off this record. So that that was kind of the beginning of our relationship. Kind of an an interesting tidbit about your song there. Right. It was a part of my relationship even. 
Well, we should send you a bill. You have to know how much that was worth. <laughs> right. And I, and I, want to, I want your wife to be there when we talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give the listeners for, I know there's millions of people that have heard the song New Orleans Ladies. I, I know there's so many people, adoring uh, fans and people that know you guys. But I have to think there's probably a few out there that may have never heard the song and anything about LaRue. And that's kind of the idea behind this whole podcast. If I can turn five new people on to the music of LaRue, that's my job is complete. So I wanted to play a clip of New Orleans Ladies, and then we'll come back and chat about the song. Well, thank you. ladies off the uh 78 album louisiana's larue tony who wrote the song and where did the idea come from for new orleans ladies leon wrote the song with another writer uh, in louisiana Hoyt garrett and you know i don't know where that idea came from Hoyt, Hoyt, it was it's a wonderful writer he's written a bunch of uh, just a bunch of cool songs and i, I don't know exactly where the idea come from Everybody, everybody has a different idea about what it means about the New Orleans ladies. And sure. Who exactly are they? And and what were they stolen by for? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of questions one way or the other. But it just uh, everybody that hears it, it's just one of those one of those melodies and that chord progression when they walk down like that, they just keep on going. It just it just kind of flows over everybody. Now, I have no intuition as to how how it came about. Or, sure. Anything of that nature. Well, and sometimes no background on things or no story behind it is it it keeps it mystical, right? I mean, uh, I don't think you have to have a story behind everything, but I always wondered, you know, that was uh, that was a question that I wanted to ask if there was some idea behind the song or if it just came to be. And it sounds like well, it just kind of came to be. Yeah, I was Leon went off here to answer that question for you, but I mean, there's always been some things where I, your people go. Nobody knows where uh, Esplanade Street is. In sure. Florence. Yep. If you're not from around here. And people say, she, from Bourbon Street to West L.A., yeah. that's a long walk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, but they would, you know, they put, it's funny how you hear things in the song that aren't there. I agree with that. What I thought mean? for a long time that the words were West Monet, like, you know, Monet being French. Like I, I thought yeah. that that might've been something, you know, and then you, you, you hit the nail on the head with, 
you know, hearing things and, and songs. And I think one of the, the famous songs, um, I think that people were thinking there were homosexual references in Jimi Hendrix song because he said, oh, excuse yeah. me while I kiss the sky, but it sounded yeah, like yeah, kiss yeah. this guy. Right. So it's all yeah. interpretation. And, and I think we hear things in music sometime, but yeah, later on, I found out that it was Esplanade and not yeah. West Monet. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes things blend together in the recordings. But I know that you had songs that charted later on, but did any of them go higher than New Orleans Ladies? Well, and, I mean, naturally, like I said, New Orleans Ladies is, will always be recognized by New Orleans Ladies. We had a song called uh, Nobody Said It Was Easy. That went to sixteen or seventeen on the on the Billboard charts. Okay, but but people don't remember that. You know, they remember they remember New Orleans. Like yes, it was, such, it was such, so highly concentrated in certain areas. You know, and uh, um, yeah, that's the only other uh, the only other one that we, that we had a lot of chart. Carrie's gone. Yeah, a song of that 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 charted. I can't remember the exact numbers. Yep, um, and there are probably some other ones. But the most, no matter what comes along, New Orleans Ladies is by far the most recognizable uh, song. I, I would agree with that. And I'm going to educate you on some of the charts here in just a second, just so, <laughs> just so you know for future reference. But, but before I do that, I wanted to say that that was the lovely voice of Jeff Pollard singing that song, correct? Yes, that definitely was. Wonderful. Man. Another one of those guys. Great, wow. Uh, great singer, great writer. I agree. And in 1978, you had a record come out, Keep the Fire Burning, in 80. I just showed you three pieces of vinyl yeah. here that I had, and one of them is the Up record that came out in 80. In 81, you had The Last Safe Place on RCA, and you actually had a number three day on mainstream rock with Addicted, just so you know. That was number three on mainstream rock. And then you had Nobody Said You Were Right, Nobody Said It Was Easy. Uh, they say it hit 18 on the Hot 100. And then Last Safe Place hit 77 on the Hot 100 as well. So there were three off the, the 81 release. I got a recording. I'll send it to you. You, you don't have to. You can pay me later. That's fine. You know, and, yeah, I got And Rod, Rod's a wonderful writer, too. He, he wrote Addicted. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's one of our highest charting records. I should say that. And he, and he wrote several songs on that, on, on that album. And he's, just, he, he's, he's got a gift for that, too. Actually, I've always tried to get Rod to sing because he has, he has an interesting voice, but he won't do lead work. He just, you know, I don't know. He's, he's got an interesting timbre to his voice. I wish he would do it. Right, but yeah, addicted. But no, we had that bit a video, and um, that's always been. Uh, now, I won't mention it, but that's another song who's uh, you can get confused with some words. <laughs> but, but it's okay. We'll leave it at that. Right, right. We won't get into that one. Right. Yeah, we won't go there. So in '83, you guys were still on RCA, and you had the so fired up record. I'll have to say that so fired up for me was uh, maybe it was just a point in time in my life, but this is probably front to back. One of the best albums that I've ever personally listened to. And I had this conversation with Randy Jackson uh, of zebra when I interviewed him 
And there were three that stuck out. And one of the other ones was the Zebra debut album, uh, which I still, I love all Zebra stuff even today, but that debut album just, man, it just did it for me. But so fired up was that record from you guys. And, you know, you had songs on there like, uh, I think, Lifeline, Let Me In. You had Line on Love on there. And just, again, if, if anybody, the, the new stuff is great too, but I, I think that if you go out and listen to some of LaRue's stuff, you have to go back to 83 and listen to some of the stuff off the So Fired Up record. And, I, and it's kind of a segue into a song called Carrie's Gone. And let's listen to a quick clip of that, treat the listeners to a clip of that, and then we'll come back and chat a little bit about that one, Tony. Fair deal? Sorry. All right. Carrie's gone off the 83 release. So fired up now, Tony, this was a song that featured Fergie Fredrickson on vocals. Correct. Correct. Great singer. And Fergie, I think, I mean, go ahead. Fergie passed several years ago. Uh, he and Jim wrote that song. It's just, I mean, to me, it's a great, it's a great rock song. You know, it's a combination rock and pop. It's a good combination. That song. Every now and then you can mix the genres and, and, and they, they feel like they were a perfect match. Yes. And that, and that was. And, um, and Fergie, I mean, he went on to sing such with Toto. He's just, he's always been a great, great singer. Impeccable range. Yes. <laughs> man. What a tenor voice. I always said, what a tenor voice that guy man. had. And you listen to any of the, even before and after Fergie went on to spend some time with Toto, I mean, Toto was never the vocal range of the, the, the singers of Toto were always up in that higher register. Oh, yeah. Like, like don't even try that one. If you're a singer, I learned later on too, that I think Fergie might've spent some time with a band called RTZ, which was founded by a couple of the ex members of the rock band, Boston, I believe. And I didn't know that, that before. Not that I didn't know it. Yeah. I think uh, Brad Delp and I can't remember who else it was from Boston that 
kind of came up with the band called RTZ, but I had the CD. It was, I think they were kind of a one and done band. Like there was maybe an album or two that they put out, but they were very short lived because I think the guys went back to Boston is my understanding, but I, I could be wrong. I can't imagine Fergie and Brad Delp in the same band. I know, right? Yeah, I know. I, well, and you know, it's funny. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I don't know what the overlap was. If, if Fergie came in after Brad, after Brad went back to Boston, I don't, I don't remember all the, yeah. the gory detail, but I know that he was tied into RTZ for a while. Well, you know, it's kind of, we were kind of the forum team for, uh, Toto, for Toto because Bobby Kimball, their singer, played, when I left to go back to college, Bobby Kimball came down and played with the Levy Band. Okay, I didn't know that. So, and he was, played keyboard and sang with the Levy Band. And then he moved to L.A. and became the singer for Toto. And then, then Fergie became the singer for Toto. It's like, I think we're the Toto forum team. You know what I mean? like, Either that or y'all were having, having an identity crisis and didn't know what band you wanted to play for, right? <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> it could have been a little bit of that, too. Yeah, it could have been that, too. Well, I ask you a little bit about, you know, what inspired New Orleans ladies and that type of thing. I think there was a story behind this song, Carrie's Gone. And my understanding was that it was written about Carrie Hamilton, right? Who is the daughter of the famous actor, Carol Burnett, who I believe Fergie may or may not have been dating at the time. Is there some validity or truth to that story? Well, there is. And he was dating her until Carrie's gone. Yeah. And then Carrie's gone. I think, I think, uh, I don't remember when, she passed, right? Or what did she pass? Or is she still around? I do, I do, I bet I do not. Okay, gotcha. But you also mentioned that Fergie passed, I think it was back in 13 or 14 from, I think it was liver cancer, right? Yeah. He had been yeah. sick. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, and he, he fought through that for a long time. I mean, that's a hard one to deal with. Yes. You know, he fought through that for a long time. Voice, I would love to still have that voice. Boy, it's amazing, and and I've always been this baritone singer, and I, I'm I'm always so impressed and inspired by these guys that can just get up in that upper register, and and I always say, man, if I could just hit those notes. But then, you know, I look back and say, you know, you have to be thankful for the fact that you can sing, you can perform. A lot of people can't do that, so. I don't discount what I can and can't do, yeah. but you know, I think I think we as humans we always want what we can't have or don't have, right? <laughs> and that tenor voice for me was one of those things. I always it's odd. I can, I, uh, I can sing and I can sing in tune and I have decent phrasing and decent chops. The sad part is that the good Lord put me at, put, put my voice in a space where nobody sings in. Yeah. I could I could I couldn't sing karaoke on almost any uh, any song. Mm-hmm. They're always in a place I can't sing. Exactly. In church, it's like I have to sing a harmony in church. Yeah. Because I can't sing the. It's like you want to go. Well, thank you so much. You gave me part of this gift. Right. But I I can't sing I can't I can't sing in the key with any record. <laughs> Yeah, I could sing the song. I got to drop it down a whole separate. <laughs> I was going to say they have to rekey everything for you and I, right? For me, we do. Oh, yeah, we do. Oh, it's so frustrating. I I play uh, my my shows. I play everything a half step down, and it's just yeah. like you you do what you got to do, right, to get by. I think is uh, it's all music. It is at the end of the day. But in 1996, you guys had uh, Bayou Degradable. In '09. It was Ain't Nothing But a Grigory. 
Tell me, there was a big gap between 96 and 09. Why a decade over so fired up and biodegradable? What was going on there for LaRue at the time? Well, the, the, the band stopped touring and everybody kind of went their separate ways over the, over the scheme of things. I ended up moving to Nashville and staying up there. And um, those albums just got, I mean, I, I, those albums are just a blur in the scheme of things. Yeah. The Bayou Degradable, there was some cool stuff on there. That's mostly Jim doing that stuff. Because I, I was out of town a whole lot. So mm-hmm. those are just a blur. I don't remember hardly anything about those. Gotcha. You know, because I, I spent half my, I mean, most of my time was spent in Nashville. I'd come down and do what I could. Like, yeah. That was a weird time. That was a weird time musically for me too. And I think I lost touch or connection with what you guys were doing. I don't really remember yeah. much from the the late nineties era. Like, I, I don't know. It didn't resonate. It's like, I, I, I tell a joke all the time in my shows, you know, I'm playing old stuff by America and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And the joke with me is I turned off the radio somewhere around 1989 or 90 and I just didn't listen to the radio anymore. So I don't know what, what the heck was going on during that time in music, much like you said, you kind of stepped out or started doing something yeah. else. And it's, it's just kind of a blur to me and to you, it sounds like. No, I agree. I, I agree. It just kind of, once, once it's slipped away from bands playing them on music, once it started to morph into that a corporate situation where they found a singer or at least somebody who looked good in jeans, and, um, and, and once, it, once it wasn't music anymore, I, I'm waiting, once it wasn't personally performed music anymore, yes, I just kind of lost interest. Yeah, um, makes I, sense. I, 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 there's, if I could read, but I haven't read a liner note in probably 20 years now, which I could get a hold of. But I mean, back then, in that era, I, would, I could at least kind of read the CDs and read the liner notes and just to see some of the players, the studio players that played on different albums. Correct. I cared more about that than a lot of the artists themselves. Uh-huh. You know, not, not that they weren't talented. It just it wasn't, it wasn't something that interested me that much. I agree. And now in, in 2010, you know, you had session years that featured uh, Carl Michaels. And then I think it was like 10 years later, 2020, middle of the, I guess that was middle of the, or the beginning. I'm horrible with dates. Pandemic. You come out with a record called One of Those Days. And this is the latest from LaRue. Am I correct there? It it is the latest. And and of all the albums you mentioned, Survivor Gradle and all that, this is the first dedicated, purely banned record of any of those. I, I, I don't totally discount the other albums, but this is the first one where but it was done with a passion and a purpose. Okay. And it, it was done uh, to, for nothing other than to serve the music. There was no other reason for, for doing this album. And uh, we're all real proud of this one. There's, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Glixman engineered it and produced it. And uh, mastered it, did everything, and made us sound, you know, bigger and better than we could have ever dreamed. Everybody played great on the album. Everybody found parts. 
so complimentary. So we're, we're actually we're really proud of this album. I guess the show. I have enjoyed it. I've listened to it multiple times. You know, there's great songs on there like uh, Luciana. I, I love that song. That's a, that's a yeah. great song. Uh, I think you guys also rem- did a remake of Lifeline, changed that one up a little bit and redid it, right? Yeah. Yep. Did. And that was from the So Fired Up record. And then I think one of those days actually was number one on the blues record iTunes charts or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So what a, you know, you come out of a 10 year hiatus between session years and then you go to number one on the charts with, with what they considered a blues record, right? And I think there's some blues yeah. in there, but I think there's some yeah. southern rock in there. It's a, it's a, it's, yeah, you, you guys are mutts, man. I mean, you, you, you got all these different genres going on, Tony, and I love that. It's like you're not, yeah, we don't know who we are. You, you're not pigeonholed, you know, you, you no. do your thing, you, you serve the music, is what you said. And I think that that's uh, uh, an accolade to you guys. It sounds you know, great. Kinda, uh, it kind of ends up, you know, we, we released an album right in the middle of COVID, but we can't go anywhere. Well, no. what else is there to do? <laughs> yeah, what else is there? So the album, the album, the faces we probably could have played in Europe. We got a lot more response in Europe than we did here, but uh, there are faces that we probably could have gone had we been able to travel at the time. But I mean, the last place I would have wanted to go was Europe at that time. No, so we exactly we didn't do any of that. But uh, we are a mud is a great description. You know, we're loyal, just like a mud to the music, but. Uh, but we've got so many different uh, bloodlines going through this thing that, um, you know, I, I really think this band could play anything from fusion to dobro blues to just, yep. I mean, I, I think it's all virtually boundless. I think I mentioned it earlier. You guys are, are top shelf musicians and that's what top shelf musicians can do. And of course, my reference to a mutt was with all due respect. And I think that, you know, that it was, it was Randy's sense of humor, but you know, it's kind of different genres and so many people I think record and they're either country or they're Americana or they're rock or they're heavy metal right there. They're in that they've been plugged in somewhere and you guys seem to kind of maneuver around through different genres. And I kind of like that approach because it sounds fresh and it, it, it keeps your attention. I, I, I dig it's, that. Sounds great. It's a blessing and it's a blessing and a curse. Sure. In a lot of ways. But, I mean, the key word that you just mentioned is pigeonhole. You have to fit into some pigeonhole. Yeah. Because if they don't know where to put you, they don't put you. Well, and that, you have so, a point. And, yes. And you know, we just we have a, a a low tolerance for boredom. Okay. So <laughs> if we had to do the same thing over and over and over, it would be really uncomfortable. And we probably we probably made some business decisions that weren't necessarily as good as they could be, but we never regretted the music that we made. Well, how can you have a band of longevity if you don't like what you're doing and you're just not doing what you do and what you love? I mean, you can't stay together and 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 do what you do. And granted, there's been some lineup changes over the years for LaRue, but uh, you know, some of the core guys are, have, have been around since the seventies. Right. And, oh, and yeah. like you oh, said yeah. earlier, 40, 50 years. And, you know, you look back at uh, guys like Randy Jackson, Guy Gelso and Felix yeah. of, of Zebra. They've been together a three piece band for 40, 40 years now. Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, you're like brothers and you, and you like what each other do. Right. Oh yeah, but but we're, we're all friends, and every every new member 
this falls into place just like they've been there for 30 years. It's, that's kind of, I mean, you have to be able to play, and we always found great players. But they also have to just kind of settle into the situation. And, you know, it's a, uh, just come in and let's play. And yep. That, that's, what, that's, how, that's how it works. Well, let's jump off and listen to a quick clip off the latest release, 2020 release. This is a tune called One of Those Days. We'll take a quick listen and come back and chat, Tony. Gotcha. Love that song. That is a rocking song. And the lyrics, penmanship in that song, I, I don't know, it resonates with me. The jeans cut off, clear up to heaven's gate. <laughs> Amen. I, I love the lyric. Who wrote the song? Well, this is one of those where there was pretty much an automatic division. Jim had that song virtually completely done musically. Uh, most of the, of the licks and everything, my contribution to the music was minimal. And then I, I, mean, I did all the lyrics, but that's that's kind of what I mean. I can do both, and in my writing career, I've written both the music and the lyrics a lot of songs. But it's just you know, Jimbo Jim started playing that, and I'm going, okay, maybe put that on tape if you don't mind, and we'll, we'll go home and have a song. Um, so that one was a pretty much obvious division. That was Jim's music and my lyrics. I love Sometimes it. Sometimes it's not so much separate like that. But yeah. Um, I like that one too. That's good. Probably, probably one of my one of my favorites off the record. Yeah. yeah, good good stuff there. And so, do you know what inspired that song? Well, you know, I, I seldom. I'm not sure if I could name an, uh, an inspiration. It was just I said, "What what does this sound like?" Okay. You know, the, heard the music and it wasn't a matter of strong. It sounds like I got, I need to be going somewhere. I need to be doing something. It's, it's a perfect tempo. Okay, not, yeah. Not too slow. It's just a good truck down the middle of the road at doing five miles over the speed limit. That's the perfect way to go. Yeah. And so uh, I started thinking, how, what would, uh, so, what would someone half my age or maybe a third my age? You said you said it, not me. Now you said it. Yeah. You said it. So I'm thinking, what, what would they want to do? So, so, back in my memory, way back. Right. In <laughs> well, I and, and that it came out. Yeah, and it's funny. I ask the questions about the meanings behind songs, not really in a fishing kind of way. Like I really need yeah. to know. It's more of it's more of from a, a songwriter. Like I've always believed that you're either a lyricist or a lyrical airhead. You either can write yeah. good songs or you can't write yeah. good songs. Yeah. And I, I probably teeter on not being able to write them like a lot can. Like, I, I mean, I just know some prolific songwriters. They, 
you talk to them and they're like, oh, yeah, I've got like 400 songs over here that I've written. It's like, really, I can't even think of two sometimes. Right. So I, I ask from that perspective, like, where do you guys dream the stuff up? <laughs> like, that's where the questions really come from, I think. Well, that's a, I mean, as a, I mean, when I was writing, just as a writer, as a professional writer, I have never written more than uh, 21 songs in a year. And that sounds like a lot, but there, there are writers in Nashville who write 70, 80, 90 Jeez. songs a year. They go to, they go into a format every day, five days a week, and have a lot of songs. And now I'm, that's whatever, whatever somebody's method is, it's fine. My grandpa used to say, you can't judge a carpenter by how much sawdust he makes. So there's a, the more you write, there's got to be a lot of sawdust. Sure. And it, that stuff that doesn't go anywhere. And we all have it. I mean, I've got, I don't know how many songs I've written over the course of my writing. I really have no idea. I know, I know about a tenth of what I've lost. Sure. But, um, and there's some sawdust in mine too. But, you know, I don't write as many true, like, um, this, you know, this happened to me in 19th. Okay. Um, you know, yeah. Blah, blah, yep. blah. And I was sitting in a bar, and you know, I I don't do that as much as I do, as much as I sit down and write a story. Okay. I'll write I'll write a story, maybe a two or three page story, and then I'll homogenize that. It doesn't have to have happened to me. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yep, that makes sense. It doesn't have to be a story that I've lived. Those are great writers, writers that do that. But sometimes you got to live a hell of a life to get stories out of it. And I've <laughs> sure. lived a pretty docile life. Most of mine has just been kind of workaday stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to go down a little bit deeper into the songwriting career, but I wanted to take just a half step backwards. And, you know, yeah. we were talking about the song one of those days, and you have Jeff McCarty on lead vocals here, correct? Man, absolutely correct. What a soulful voice! I, I I love his voice. What a what a great fit for Larue. When did Jeff come in to Larue, and and where did you guys find him? Well, you know, once again, uh, I, I think my whole career has been accidental. This was one of those situations where uh, Rod he was playing at a club down in Homer, Louisiana. Rod went this to him and said, "Man." You need to come hear this guy, man. This might be slightly we could use as a singer, and, he, and he's local, and it, you know, it all could be, you know, could be a lot real convenient. Besides, so I went here, and we went, "Geez, we definitely need, we definitely need him." And once again, he came in, and he just fit, you know, just fit right in, like like we've been doing this for fifty years. Yeah, his range is, is ridiculous, and he, you know, he can sing everything from metal to soul. And and he's got the strength to do it for you know you know because he's worked you know he's he's sung like that you know four or five nights a week for four hours at a time his voice is like a muscle that's just you know he's got the, a Schwarzenegger voice yeah and it's, it's it's powerful and strong and then it's just uh, he's got he's soulful and not only that he's a real pleasure to be around so he's a good guy so on yeah. top of that. Don't people like that with that kind of talent piss you off? Well, they, they, they do sometimes until I get to until I get to know. Them. I think they really piss me off if they got that kind of talent and don't know. Them. Right? Yeah. Because, yeah. Because then you go, this guy's so great. He doesn't even know he's that great. Exactly. Oh, That's right. It's like amazing. I'd give anything to have some of that. To have some of those jobs. But uh, yeah, it, 
you look at that gift. Yeah. Uh, wow. He works hard. It is a gift, but he works hard at it too. So yeah, uh, yeah. That was a that was a lightning strike. That happened. Yeah. He's the reason. He's the reason we were able to finish this last album. Because we had had stuff like that ready to go for a year or two. We just never could find the right person to deliver the material. And he was that missing link. And that's, uh, we're happy we stumbled across that young man. Well, he uh, fits like a glove. I mean, the record sounds great. Where was this recorded? Was this a studio in the country thing or was this somewhere else? No, there's a studio in New Orleans called Esplanade. It's in an old church. Magnificent building. In fact, they still have the, the huge pipe organ at the end of it. I mean, they probably got, you know, 18 uh, foot pipes in, in some of these places. The ceiling is, I mean, the ceiling's got to be 40 feet. It's an, it's an amazing drum room. We recorded it there and, and mixed it there. Personas has a studio in their building too, that, you know, that, that we used for, for a couple of things, some overdubs and stuff. But the majority of it was done at Esplanade okay. in New Orleans. And, uh, Great. It's a great room and great people. Yeah, but what a fine sound and record. Congrats on that release. And uh, I definitely want to encourage the listeners to get out and, and take a listen to that by LaRue. I'm sure you can find that on Spotify and iTunes and all the, the, the major carriers of that. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the songwriting career. What year did you take off to Nashville? Uh, my wife probably remembers better than I did. Oh, hey, let me see. We were there for about 30 years, so it was probably like 90, maybe 95-ish or something like that. Somewhere, okay. Somewhere in that register. And was that move to Nashville truly to focus on songwriting, or did you just say, you know, I'm fed up, it's time to go somewhere else, and this is where we landed? Well, I will tell you, uh, this is a unique story. I, every now and then I would do a seminar. And people would ask me how I got into somebody business in Nashville. Well, when we stopped touring, when LaRue stopped touring, we sold our tour bus to Ronnie Millsaps, uh, Tommy Kirkley's, the guy that did Ronnie Millsaps merchandise. So I drove the bus up, because I had driven the bus from time to time, so I drove the bus up, dropped it off, and stayed for a couple of days. And uh, this is pre-cell phone. I had left a cassette in the bus. I didn't know it was in there. Uh, four songs that I'd written. So in the process of cleaning out the bus, Tommy brought this kid said he's gonna just he could have just thrown it into the trash. He brought it up to the head of the publishing company, uh, the LSAT Publishing Company, and they actually listened to it. So that's that's why I'm telling you my whole career has been an accidental career. They listened to it and I had a, a phone number on there. So uh, he called and I would like I said it's pre-cell phone, he called my wife. And she said, well, he's still in Nashville, blah, 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 for sure. So I, I uh, she said, call, call this guy. So I did. And they said, man, uh, what would it take you? You want to write songs in Nashville? I'm going, well, yeah, I don't want to move, but, I, I, you know, I'd love to write songs. So that's how that started. Totally, once again, totally accidental. So what I tell people is if you want to get into songwriting, the best thing you could do is buy $300,000 tour bus so you can in <laughs> and, that, and that's the easiest way to do it. And hope you get struck by lightning like Tony Hazelden did. Somebody, something tells me that I wouldn't have the same luck if I went out and spent $300,000. But that's another story in and yeah, itself. You, you, you never know. And I, I'm ashamed to say it's kind of been an unconscious career. Uh, I started that and worked for uh, Millsap's company for about a year. Then I, a friend of mine, and I'm still my best friend today. We worked together for 30 years. 
He, he came up to work for Harold's company, who produced Alabama and KT Alva and everybody in the world. So, and that kind of started from there. Then, you know, 30 years later. I was going to say, it sounds like you've been an accident waiting to happen, Tony, but all the accidents have been good accidents so far in your career, right? You're, you're very humble about the way you've stumbled into all this stuff, but I'm sure a lot of people would love to have the same accidents happen to them at some point in their life, too. Right? It is true. I mean, I've always wanted to do the things that have happened to me. Yeah. But I've never been, you know, I, I don't know that I would have been those person that would have followed it to the end <laughs> to do, you know, I might have gone back. I, you know, I was getting ready to go. Do, I started on my master's in psychology, blah, blah, blah. If things hadn't happened in the order that they did, I may have gone back and chosen another path. Sure. But it seems like at every junction, something, there was an accident for me to get in LaRue. Yeah. There was an accident for them to find that tape and do that. So at some point I have to go that there's been, there's been some kind of odd divine intervention or, or either God wasn't paying attention and just, oops. <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly how it happened. But uh, apparently I did have the good once I got the opportunity, but the opportunities have sprung, sprung on me with absolutely no intention. Yeah. Who is the baby's daddy, right? <laughs> I'm glad you like that. Yeah, the, the the divine intervention or whatever you mentioned, it made me made me think about the song that you did. Who who the baby daddy? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if, if we had better audio, uh, audio quality across a, a Zoom session, I'd tell you to pick up the guitar and play that for the listeners. But I'll, I'll put a link out to YouTube because uh, I'll share that with them yeah. uh, after the fact. But would you say that songwriting has always come easy to you? It, yeah, it, yeah, it pretty much has. I, I think I've always been, I mean, even I've always been a wise ass. It kind of takes that to be a songwriter. You either have to be a wise ass or schizophrenic. And I think I had, I was a little bit of both. And I depend, I rely mostly on humor and song. I mean, a lot of, most of the hits I've had haven't had that much humor, but the songs that I enjoy the most, and if I were to sing them, you would have, if I were to sing my favorite song, it would be songs you've never heard. Sure. I mean, I mean, whether it's George Strait or Sinai Twain or those people, the songs that I like the most, are the ones that have been least radio friendly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, in fact, if you ask me to show you my favorite song I've ever written, I would show you Who Baby Daddy. I mean, that's one of my, as far as if I, if I had to show you, if I had to say, what makes you think you're qualified to be a songwriter, I would play that song. Yeah. And well, nobody will ever hear it. Well, I, I had a grin from ear to ear when I was listening to it, I, and I enjoyed it. So, And I appreciate that humor, too. So I, I will definitely share that post-show. But you pen songs for some pretty darn big names in country music. Would you say, would you say there's more money to be made in songwriting than actually performing or uh, help myself and the listeners understand that have never been at that level of songwriting and don't steal my thunder on who you've written for, because we're going to talk about that too. But I'm just trying to understand what kind of living can a good Nashville songwriter make and, and compared to the Kenny Chesney or these guys yeah. that are the Keith Urbans, right? Well, if you, if you take the top tier, if you were to take the top tier, the Dallas Davidson's, 
the Shane McAnally's who had that, that songwriting show on uh, television, a major network. If you were to take the top, at, at this point, probably 17 or 18 writers control 40% of the chart, 35 to 40% of the chart. So a number one song, but the total work of the number one song nowadays is probably about, if it's just a, not, I mean, not a 10-week number one, but a regular number one, it's probably worth about $700,000. So if you own all the songs, it's $700,000. If you wrote it with three people, you split it by three. If you don't have your own publishing, if they, then the publisher usually gets half, writer gets half. So, I mean, you know, some of these guys, almost every song nowadays has three writers on it. I mean, I, in my day, I had a lot of songs that I wrote by myself, but and now everything's become a conglomeration, kind of a corporate situation. Is that because they, they have a better chance of hitting hitting a gold mine with one if you if you co-write them versus just writing them alone well it's like it's like you it's like deepening the gene pool if you want to yeah that way so yeah if you've got if, I, if i've got one guy and one publisher they have the, they can they have all of the all of their contacts are not near as much as if you have two guys and two publishers and then three guys and three publishers the power of networking right so the power of networking, and then if you've got, say you've got one guy that's a good lyric, one guy that's a good musical guy, and another guy that's a track guy. So they put it together as a, they put it together like that. So the thing is, early on, nobody has their public. You have, you get the writers and somebody else gets the publish. So, as a, I mean, just for the sake, for the sake of simplicity, $600,000, say, if you don't, the publisher gets 3000 these three, I mean, uh, three hundred thousand. These three writers get three hundred thousand, so they end up with a hundred grand. Yep. What happens? What What's happened now, though, that's unusual. In the old days, I had a song, a uh, number one song on George Strait. It sold two million, made money from the album sales, made money from the radio play, and then two years later, they did a greatest hits album. So they made money from that. That sold two million, and, and then two or three years later, they did a box set of fifty number ones, and that sold. That doesn't happen. That that income stream has disappeared. Yes, thanks. You know, because nobody does a greatest hit. You build your own. Yeah. So it's uh, I mean, the guys at the upper echelon. I mean, they're you know, they, you know, they can they can be making you know eight hundred thousand million dollars a year. You don't know. Sure. Mid-level writers that, have, that might have a hit every three years. You know, they could you know they can make a decent living more than they can and do another stuff. Yep. To the tune of I don't know, probably average out to seventy-five, eighty thousand years something. Like yeah. That. But uh, it's, the writing income has been just decimated the, uh, thanks to the uh, internet. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, YouTube, I wrote a song, I wrote a, a, a song for Kid Rock called Podunk. It's on, it's on YouTube. I think it's had, well, I don't even know. I think it's up to maybe 35 or 40 million views. If that had happened in the old days, I mean, I, I mean, it's no telling what I would have made. Yeah. I think I made, I'm a third writer on that one. I think I might, well, I'm a fourth after Kid Rock put his name on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. But yeah. Yeah. But um, I think I made 1500 bucks 
Yeah. So oh, I can see where it's diluted down. It's it's watered well, down there. Lighter, well, I mean, between YouTube and Amazon and all that stuff, and I use Amazon Music too. I'm not. I'm not saying. Um, it's just there's no, unless you're one of the chosen few. There were there were guys back when I was writing. They'd write. They might have twenty songs, uh, uh, maybe ten songs a year, on, and not be on an album. None of them are singles. But if they sold, if those sold five million albums. You know that was ten cents a song. Yep. So there were there were more ways to make money. So the income stream is narrow. So long story short, it's it's workable, but it's never been tougher. Yep. And d- didn't they used to call that mailbox money or something like that? Yeah, and it's still you know I me mean, to this day. I mean, it's still it's still okay. Yeah. And the truth is, it's the best job in the world. Uh-huh. You go home at night and have dinner with your wife and your kids. And the only other job that would be just as much fun would be studio guy. Yeah. You know, if I had if I had a choice, I'd probably pick that over the quote started by. Oh yeah, I would think so. Yeah. So of course you wrote many great songs for Larue, but a lot of folks may not realize that you've written many hit songs for some big name artists. And I wanted to throw out some names that you've written for, and. If you can, you can let me know the name of the song that became hits with each of the artists that I throw out. Is it fair enough? You got it. How about Shenandoah? Uh, a song called Mama Knows. That was my first uh, decent. Okay. You had a hit song with Keith Whitley. Uh, it ain't nothing. Just before that song came out, two weeks after he died. What a talent. I play Keith Whitley in some of my shows, and gee, what a wonderful oh. artist. He was one of my absolutely favorite uh, country singers. Yes. Maybe my favorite. He was so pure. We could go uh, talk about rabbit holes. We could go way down one with Keith Whitley. But how about Sweethearts of the Rodeo? Oh, I forgot about that song. Which one was it? You can't know. Wait a minute. Don't tell me This Heart. Yeah. Uh, There's a song called This Heart. That one did okay. I think it might have been 30 or 25. Okay. And uh, George Strait? Oh, that did number one. That was number one for like four weeks. Uh, you know me better than that. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. That was a great song. Uh, how about Martina McBride? Actually, that's one of my favorite songs that nobody ever heard. That's Me is the name of that song. Okay. That was supposed to be her her next single. And I forgot what happened that kept that from being a single. But anyway, I, I do. That's one of my favorite songs, I have to say. Shania Twain. That one was called What Made You Say That. That Actually, the funny that song that wasn't a big song, but that's the song she met Bud Lang. She did, She was wearing a red dress and a white dress. And as the video, video, the guy that shot the video told me, that's all she was wearing was a red dress and a white dress. Very <laughs> okay. silky. And uh, so she, Bud Lang called after that, after you saw that video, so called. What did I say? What made you say that? Yeah. And um, that's how they ended up beating over that song. Wow. I, I wish he had decided to re-record it. I'd have made a whole lot more money. <laughs> uh, I always tell a story about Chinado. We were at the same office. We were in the same office. And uh, every year we'd go out and uh, our guy that owned the company had a, a, you know, a 43-foot boat. We'd go out on the boat in the lake and just kind of pull up into a cold and swim. Long story. Uh, all the guys, we just jumped in, several of the guys, but with, with uh, life preservers, and they just throw drinks down to it. Well, I, I went at the back of the boat, and Shania, all the girls were getting ready to come in, and Shania took her 
top off, I mean, not her top off, her, her cover up, and had a bathing suit on. And all the other girls decided not to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I tease my wife, I tell this at all the private shows. I said, honey, I said, I said, whatever happens to me, I said, on my deathbed, I'll make it you and my daughter and my grandkids. I said, the next thing is going to be Shania's butt coming down that ladder at the <laughs> back of that boat. But she, and she was the absolute sweetest girl wow. on the planet. I mean, she's the sweetest she could possibly be. Half the time, she'd be in jeans and, and uh, flannel shirt. Yeah. Well, gee, and, you know, Mutt, Mutt Lang in and of itself, like who who didn't want to record with Mutt Lang? You know, oh one, one of the – who all did he do? Gee, he did Def Leppard and, and maybe uh, – I don't know if Billy he did – Billy Yeah, I mean, just the uh, – Brian yeah, Adams. Yeah, the, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? Hit record yeah. after hit record. You, you wrote for Colin Ray, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's my story. I'll stick to it. Yep. I played that in front of him. He used to have people come by and play songs at a, a bar, not a bar, but kind of a place in town. And we'd all go up different lighters. We'd go and play a song. I played that one. Uh, Leroy Parnell and I had written that song. And I played that one for him. And, I mean, that was, that was one of those quick turnarounds. He heard the song, and two weeks later, it was recorded. Wow. I mean, it was just, that doesn't happen often. No. You had some hit songs with Reba McIntyre, too, as well, right? The Reba McIntyre song was a song called Love Needs a Holiday. And what hap- that was another anomaly, the things that can happen in the music business. That song came out as a single, and, they, and the label decided to drop her uh, about a month, six weeks into the song. So the song just, boom, they stopped promoting it and it died. There's a lot of artists, and I think that a lot of folks would, you know, as we went down that list, they would be like, wait a minute, he wrote that? Wow, wait a minute, he wrote that one too? Wow, that's a, that's a lot. And, and certainly those are A-list artists there. Uh, so great work on those. You know, and, and then back in the day, you guys, you know, you played with some of the, and you were on some of the biggest shows, like I think Solid Gold, you guys were on, Don Kirshner's Rock oh, Concert yeah. and the Midnight Special. And then you turned around and played with some of the greats, like um, if I remember correctly, Journey, the Almond Brothers, Kansas Heart, Foreigner. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But were there any of the mentioned bands, you know, the the ZZ Tops, the Foreigners, that stick out in your mind as being a favorite band to tour with or play with at, at festivals or wherever you were playing at the time? Once we played, everybody liked the band, even though even, even there were times when we didn't actually fit the, 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 uh, the pairing wasn't exactly perfect. But it always worked well. Kansas, we we're always friends with Kansas, but we had the same man. So we toured a lot with Kansas, and we know all those guys. And you know, we uh, you know we've known them from the very beginning. That was probably one of it was it would have been one of our favorites. Toured with the Doobie Brothers. That was a that that was a good one. ZZ Top. We did a couple of long, pretty long tours with them. You know, we we never I, there's we had one bad tour, and I won't mention the name. But by, by and large, most of them. Everybody was just great. You know, either, yeah. either they, either they, they were they were never less than cordial. Sure. And sometimes we got closer to some other some bands than others, but you know they they were never never a not fun yeah. situation. I think that, and I don't know if it's an age thing or not, but you know, back in the day, the the bands didn't want 
they were standoffish. They didn't want cameras. They didn't want video. They didn't. And, and of course, that wasn't the digital age back then. Now it's like the bands are more welcoming. They encourage it. It's just a, a changing of the time. But, you know, if I look back 40 years ago and said that I'd ever get to talk to guys like yourself and the Steve Blazes of Lillian Axe and, and Randy and Guy from Zebra, it's like it was almost like it was a a listener and them and there was no way to bridge that chasm between the two you know you, do you understand what i'm saying and now it's more of a personal thing like you're sitting here talking to me like we've known each other for a hundred years and it's just maybe it's just a different time but i was thinking wonder how much of that is age we mature and we don't have that same arrogant mindset that we had as 20 year old musicians that are out touring the world you know what i'm saying thank you yeah i think you're probably i mean you're so eager and anxious to prove yourself early on and you're either shy or you're cocky i mean i mean i i've been we've all been through that man i I, the first time i met chad atkins i thought i was gonna fall down and hell i was probably like 24 five um well no older than that probably 35 i I think that at, at some point you realize we're all playing i'm playing the best i can play sure you're playing the best you can play it's not a competition it says i'm doing what i can do you're doing what you can do and if you happen to be you know if you happen to be eric johnson you're doing the hell out of what you (laughs) and i'm sitting and i and i'd still be in awe but i'd be i'd still be just like hank talking to you it's just a thing you know yes everybody has somebody everybody has somebody that you just go, man, I would love to pick that guy's brain. I'd love to, if I could just get up and watch him play from, from four feet away, it'd be great. So, I mean, that, that never that never goes away. No. I mean, it just never goes away. I think it's amazing that you say that because we all look at certain people with Revere like, you know, for an example, I sit here and say, man, Tony Hazelden, LaRue, what a great player, what a great songwriter. And then you think about you know, the other guitarists, like you, you're a humble musician, I can tell. And you admire, you even have admiration for people that are far better than you. So when we talk about the John Mayers and the, you know, the Eric Johnsons, it, it's crazy how good those guys are at that level, right? Coming from a guy like you, who is a, is a, uh, you know, a polished musician yourself to, to hold those guys in. Uh, such high regards it's it's pretty amazing but they're out but you know that's, that's what i'm saying i could probably write you a list of 30 in a matter of five minutes mm-hmm. that are you know, you know people that i go this guy as far if i put in writers and all that together you know i'll, I'll send you a list tomorrow it'll be an email this long you know but if you don't have anybody to look up to i just you're gonna live a boring life i agree i agree you know i mean you gotta have somebody to or, or not look up even if it's not looked up, just if you don't have somebody to learn from. Yep. You know, God knows if I live to be, if I, I can think of so many people now, I'd have to live to 300 to be able to even get, <laughs> to get close to I agree. Out there, man. And it's a blessing to have those people out there that you can learn. I agree. I want to talk to you real quick about equipment, being a, a musician myself. What does the guitar collection look like for Tony Hazelden? Do you have hundreds of guitars or are you, you a modest, you know, few here and there? What, what does it look like for you? I just have a few. I've been through the, I tell my wife, you married the stupidest man on the planet. <laughs> you know, I've had, I've had the 59 
<laughs> I've had 59 Les Paul, the 52 Tele, the, the 57 Strat, the 62 Strat, all that. I ended up selling everything. Um, now I just have, now I'm, I'm a pretty much a Strat guy. I just sold a Les Paul, had a beautiful Les Paul. I just, I love what they sound like, but they can't, I just, I can't make them work as well as a Strat type. Uh-huh. So basically I have, I have like a 57 reissue. I have really no collectibles. I just built one parts uh, strat with single, single hum and uh, have, have a, uh, the obligatory tally. And then I have my main guitar is a uh, Melanson guitar. There's a guy here in Thibodeau that, well, he was shipping his guitar worldwide. It's um, M E L A N C O N. Sounds like Melanchon. Okay. But he's, he just passed. He was a young man, 54, just, just passed. A sad story. But that's, that's my main guitar. It has three P90s in it. And, and as far as amps go, I've reduced it to uh, Kemper Stage. And, I, you know, it's like I can I can make myself two guitars at Kemper Stage and, and a monitor in one hall. Yeah. So I don't I – don't, uh, I've never been a great high-volume player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even when I was using amps, I was using a deluxe and a pedal board. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the old days, I used larger amps, but that's never been my favorite thing. Now, Jim is a great, Jim's great at playing. He's a wonderful rock player. He handles volume much better than I do. But yeah, I don't have any, I've kind of reduced the herd to almost nothing nowadays. Thin the herd, huh? Yeah, thin the herd. Yeah, I'm looking at your wall. It looks pretty good over there. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple. I, I don't have a, a big collection at all. But what what I've started doing is is buying some guitars. So each season that I do in the podcast, I, I try to get the guests to somehow all sign these guitars so I can have each season on the wall. And so I'm going to have to figure out how to get over to Thibodeau or meet up wherever oh, LaRue man. might be playing and ask you for a signature on, on season one of, of the guitar. So I go to Houston every three weeks. Oh, do you really? Okay. Well, yeah. that might we'll make a point. Yeah, for sure. So what about a go-to guitar? Do you have a go-to electric that yeah. you just call it the go-to? Yeah, this is, if, you, if, you, if I had to pick one guitar and just take it, it would be this. The, uh, this is the uh, uh, the Milan song. Okay. Uh, people in Radio Land cannot see it, obviously, but uh, it's the 3P90s. It's a little bit thicker than a standard strap. Uh, it has a push-pull that kind of thickens up the, the, uh, the bridge pickup. But to me, it's just, if I could play a Les Paul, I even got a style bought a 60 reissue with a smaller neck, I just cannot seem to access those guitars as easy as I can a scrap type. Interesting. So, um, and and that the guitar I just showed you has been in every possible configuration it can be. It was born a strat, then it started, then I had it made hum, single hum, then it was single, single hum, now it's 3P90. <laughs> Knowing the maker makes a big difference. We were able to do all that. Oh, sure. But yeah, that's my go-to. Yeah. Also, is my go-to. How about from an acoustic perspective? Do you play much acoustic or is it all electric? Or what What would you say the balance is? And then what the second part of that question is, what's the go-to acoustic brand for you, manufacturer for, for you? For years. Uh, yeah, I'll show you one. Since we're talking anyway, you can see nobody else. I uh the whole writing years I ended all the writing years I ended up writing on a top okay uh, that I bought thirty years ago and I still love it I still love the net uh, and that's what I take out when I go do a writer's show 
I've got a I've got the cheapest tailor tailor made guitar that uh, I think four ten. I bought that about twenty years ago. Okay. In fact, I, I, I we were at uh, George Gruen's place and it was sitting there, and I, I was getting ready, I was getting ready to go do a show, and we had two or three studio uh, players there, and they all picked it up and played played and said, "Man, this guitar sounds good. This guitar sounds good." I said, "Well, if they like it, I'm buying it, so I bought it." Okay. This, I had this one made. This is a Danny Farrington guitar. It's a uh, it's a real real light acoustic. The neck was designed out of off of a sixty less fall a sixty less off of it. Okay. It's real small. About a tune I never pick it up. If I had to pick one guitar, I end up taking the top just because of the, the, the electronics. Yeah. And uh, uh, the ease of playing. That's the one I do. I have no showcase instruments anymore sure i'm a taylor player myself and uh, that's kind of my go-to line my my working acoustic that i play mostly is the 814 ce from taylor but i was introduced to a guy named wayne johnson years ago at a taylor road show who is a grammy award-winning guitarist that is a featured artist with taylor and he travels around doing these road shows and i got to talking to him and he plays for a group called the manhattan transfer and he has and he has I think he somehow has ties or is written for Elton John and uh, Ricky Lee Jones and some of th- those types of names. But where I was going with that is there is a Taylor guitar called a T5Z and it's a hybrid, you know, the hybrid electric acoustic uh, guitar. Yeah. And he said for all the time that he was traveling with the Manhattan transfer all over the world, he carried this you know, huge thing of guitars. It had 10, 15 guitars he carried around. He said, as soon as I bought that T5Z, everything else went away and I carried one guitar on tour. That's all I needed to get all the sound, whether it was electric or acoustic or, you know, a tele sound or a strat sound. He could do all of that by just tone knobs and the different selectors on that guitar. So it's, it's a very versatile guitar. So I, I, you know, I was wondering if you had a go-to guitar that you'd carried or if it was a, a slew of them that you had to carry to get no. multiple sounds right you know even on the road i mean uh, even on the road that's when i had the, the 59 that's on the 62 fast. that's what i carried and i mean it, it obviously they came in a hotel with me every night but man jeff had a jeff jeff had a 59 and he had a 57 strap that i sold him. and so we had great guitars out there but as soon as the roadies went home the amps got lighter yeah. Like, once we sent the roadies away, oh man, I'm looking for small. I'm looking for small. When Tony has to start loading in and loading out his own gear, there's a different mindset, isn't there? We call it, we call it wisdom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bad backs and wisdom. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. It's very interesting that you say that. I have a pedal board that probably had. Uh, let's just call it eight pedals for the ease of conversation. And it was in this, um, this metal travel case that's, you know, you could, you could throw out of an airplane and nothing would damage these pedals. Right. And it weighed 50 pounds, but I wanted to get all my pedals on one board. And then I carried this big tub with, you know, this, that, and the other guitar stands and whatnot. And just this past weekend, I said, I am not getting any younger. I have got to figure out how to streamline the stuff and carry less and get the same amount of sound. So that was my last weekend project was to scale 
all the stuff yeah. I load in and out of these places into a much smaller vehicle and it just takes less uh, bending and, and moving things. I just can't stand yeah, I can't that anymore. That. <clears throat> I've been very happy with the uh, camper. Sound men, sound men like it. Yeah. Direct, they get a direct, and it's, and it's, it's the closest thing I've ever had to an amp without having to I just, you know, I just don't want to carry that stuff around anymore. It's, and it's really not necessary because nine times out of ten live, I seldom go to hear somebody live searching a large venue and go, man, that sounds incredible. Right. Which sounds good, but it's not like, you know, it's just so you, it's just good. It's good. It's good enough. Sure. It's good enough, except for the ten guitar players out there. Other than that, so, so who cares? I have said that. I don't know if we if we get inside of each other's heads sometimes, but I have said that so many thousands of times. It's like if we're in a room playing and there's 250 people in the room, there's probably only four in there that can do what you do, and three of them aren't listening to you anyway. Yeah. So so why, yeah. why are you stressing over you know, get your sound good. It doesn't, you, because yeah. I think as artists, we're always searching for the magical sound, yeah. right? It, we, it's, it's always elusive. We never find it, you know, make it easy and, and just get, get a good get, sound and be done with it. Get it good enough to for, get it good enough for you. Exactly. You know, a bad sound hurts you, but as long as you get, I get, I, I like playing this sound. I'm good. Right. You know, I mean, it's never going to be just like the studio. Nope. Nope. Enjoy. We're humans at the end of the day. Well, back in uh, somewhere around, I think it was October of 2009, you guys were inducted into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame. And I don't think a lot of people are big on accolades, but what was that experience like for you personally? You know, you're a, you're a Thibodeau, Louisiana guy, and you get called and say, hey, we would love to induct you into your state hall of fame. What, what did that mean to you as a, as a musician and artist? Well, I, mean, I mean, every time musicians, you know, I mean, we need to have recognition, you know, cause uh, we're usually so critical about what we do and so hard on ourselves and skew things. Uh, I mean, it was a great, it's a great thing. It's the best thing that could happen to somebody, a musician in Louisiana. So I mean, we were certainly excited about that. I mean, they did the, uh, so Rue got in the Hall of Fame, and then I got in as a songwriter. It's like, just to have people at least recognize that you, you've accomplished something. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't matter whether you, it's, it's a perfect welding bead or whether it's a, yeah. a, a song. Just to be recognized uh, as, as uh, someone worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. Yep. That's what a blessing that is. Yes, it is indeed. And I recently had three other guests on my show who I've kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast that were also inducted into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame just a year after you guys were in 2010. So Randy Jackson and Guy Gelso from Zebra were inducted in, oh, yeah. in 2010. And then Steve Blaze and Lillian Axe, you know, from the New Orleans area yeah. were also inducted into 2010 as well. So a uh, huge, huge accolades for you, Cajun guys. Congrats on that. And you and your wife, Julia, call Thibodeau home today. What, what keeps you guys busy? You're not out touring like you used to and you know, doing those kinds of things. What, what keeps you, know, you guys busy these days? We just kind of, we're kind of mature folks who, uh, you know, we kind of hang with friends and she's a wonderful cook and I play golf and I play guitar still three or four hours a day, that kind of thing. And, uh, 
you know, uh, I have a little, just a fun band down here that we'll get together and play. Um, we just, you know, we don't have any special things, but same old stuff, get out, go eat, and hang out. Yeah. No, no real projects other than LaRue. Yeah. As far as I go. So what's the condition of the city since the recent hurricane blew through there? I know that you didn't suffer a lot of uh, uh, damage. In fact, it was very minimal compared to a lot of things that went on in Louisiana. But what is Thibodeau looking like these days just in general? Thibodeau, Thibodeau has, has survived very well. Some, some trees down the golf course lost like 75 trees and probably... Twenty of those were maybe fifty, sixty-year-old oaks, mm-hmm. pine trees and stuff. Uh, that whole neighborhood out there lost a lot of trees. There wasn't some. There wasn't. The major damage was probably limited to ten percent of the residences here. I didn't lose anything. I lost a little shed out back, but that was not a big deal. Houses absolutely uh, untouched. Further south is just devastating. I mean, 80% of the houses on Grand Isle were damaged. Yeah. Probably 40 of them were completely, completely demolished. Um, and that happened all along the southern part of the coast there. Places, places that you won't recognize, like Fouchon and uh, Chauvin, those places down in there. Um, we got, I, I feel extremely blessed. Uh, we, did, we didn't have electricity for, I think, uh, probably 17 days. Wow. And that's always an experience. You forget how much you appreciate that. Had to, had to keep the generator running and bring in, you know, about 20 gallons worth of gas a, a day. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, everybody gets up and does the same thing the next morning, gets it going until it gets back to normal. Absolutely. Um, all good. The, the Cajuns yeah. have learned to persevere over the years, for sure. It seems like every dadgum storm that comes into the, the Gulf will invariably take a turn straight for Louisiana every time. Oh, yeah. It's the oh, yeah. it's the damnedest thing that I've ever seen. I don't I don't know why that is. I'm not a, a meteorologist and, and I don't play one on T V either, but yeah. uh it, I, it's I it just <laughs> seems like a, a, a Louisiana is a magnet for them. What is on the horizon for LaRue? What can you talk about coming up for LaRue? I know we're kind of trying to come out of pandemic uh it's yeah. it's crazy the delta variant and whatnot it just lingers around what what's on the horizon for you guys well i mean i, I think we're probably like most of the fans we're just we're just waiting for it to open up enough you know that we can get out and play i mean you know we're probably we're probably a, a, a 35 we might, might be a 35 dates a year kind of band um but we're just uh we're just you know, like everybody else, you're waiting until the venues are, 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 are eligible. It seems like, you know, they were about to open up, then everything shut back down. They'll We've already talked about starting another album. Okay. Um, but that'll be fun. Right. That's, that's when I stay the busiest. The writing, uh, it, seems to, it seems to me I don't really write anymore without a purpose. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm out of the loop in Nashville pretty much, but um, unless Lou's doing an album, I don't really spend as much time writing as I, as I should. So I like when that happens. I like when we crank that up. And I think, you know, like I said, we've been, what, what 70, 76 we've been together. So mm-hmm. I'm just, we're, just, we're going to ride the horse as long as it'll go because we love doing it. And, there's, you know, and we still have an audience. So yep. it basically is the uh, same as the day before. Get up and 
and find a place to play and go do it. That's right. And Julia says, as long as you're doing another album, that's a few more days you stay out of her hair, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know this story well. It was just an educated guess. We're guys, right? So I have to guess that we're all in the same boat. (laughs) Where can the listeners find you guys on social media, Tony? I'm not much on social media stuff. We have a Facebook page. Um, might, might have to let Mark call that out. That's that's where you can find most of us. Okay. Uh, most of our stuff would be on uh, Facebook, Louisiana LaRue. Yeah, I think. The LaRue Band page. Yeah, I think there's a presence and, and on Instagram. You can you go to the LaRue website. Okay. Um, LaRue Band or Louisiana <clears throat> LaRue. Yeah, you guys make sure to check out uh, LaRue on social media and certainly get out there and listen to them on iTunes, Spotify, and help support the band. Tony, let's uh, let's jump into some quick fire questions. So how about uh, Beatles or the Stones? Eagles. Favorite genre of music? At this point, it's probably fusion. Summer or winter? Summer, without a doubt. That blood gets thin the older we get, and that the winter just kind of <laughs> it goes through us somehow. I don't. I don't do winter. Man. My dad. My dad says the same thing. She, he said, "I can I can sit out here and work and do stuff in this garage when it's 105 degrees outside, but boy, as soon as it turns 50, I'm running like hell." Like, oh, <laughs> he said, "My th- my skin is thin, and I don't want to be out in this stuff anymore." 55 is my cutoff. Yeah, there you go. How about acoustic or electric guitar? Probably electric at this point. My hands are not as strong as they used to be. String. How about string choice for the guitar? What kind of strings are you playing? I've, I've gone. Had to go. I've had to go down to nines. Forty-two uh, Diadario. Forty-two nine. Is that an uncoated, uncoated kind of yeah, string? I, can't, I don't. I'm not fond of the coated. Really? Okay. I don't even like them on acoustics. Actually, I've learned to kind of avoid the squeak over the years. Yeah. How about? Um, do you have a favorite, if you had to call out a manufacturer, who would you say from an electric perspective that would be from a guitar, electric guitar perspective? Um, I'm in Fender type. Fender, okay. Whether it's, whether it's a Sir or whatever, yep. Fender type. Sir and then, type is my favorite. I need the, I need the bar. Uh, it's become an integral part of what I do, and uh, I don't use it all the time, but I, I do need it every now and then. So whatever Fender does. Right. And would you say that the talk is a uh, acoustic brand of choice or no? Say again. The, the, uh, which, which acoustic brand would you, would you oh, say uh, your kind of go-to is? The, the, as for, you know, road guitar, uh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the talk of me. Then yep. I have the old electronics. I have a 25 year old and I like that electronics even better than the new stuff. I have a custom made Danny Farrington guitar that I had made in 1977. Uh, but it's so delicate and fragile that I can't take it anywhere. I'd leave it now. So I'd say talk is my go-to okay. guy. All right. You're a rock or country guy? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm probably that's – a, that's a tough question. I'm, I, that, there is no rock anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so and – I, and, I and I don't like – I'm not a big fan of current country. Yeah. I'm uh, – how do I put this? I'm probably – a, a 70s rock and an 80s country guy. There you go. That's probably that's probably what I am. Fair enough, yeah. How about uh, Nashville or Thibodeau? I, I love both of them. 
I wish I could put them together because I love the people. This is a lifelong uh, uh, family down here, Thibodeau, Thibodeau, uh, the town of Thibodeau. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I miss the access to musicians and music and writers. I miss that a lot. Yeah. So, and that's not a good answer, but that's the best I can think. <laughs> I'm going to take a note to send you a song that a friend of mine wrote years ago. It's called Honolulu, Texas. And it was written about, you, you talked about kind of melding Nashville and Thibodeau together. He's a native Texan. His wife at the time when he wrote the song was a California girl. She loved the beach. He loved Texas. You know, the the whole they always yeah. spoke about, you know, when we retire, where will we go? And she's like, well, we want to go to the beach. And he's like, no, I want to go to Texas. And so the song was written about a dream that he had one night where a massive rainstorm happened and it moved Honolulu east and, and it merged with Texas and it became Honolulu, Texas. And I think you would love the creativity of the song. <laughs> oh, so when you said, I would love to take a little bit of Nashville with Thibodeau and meld it together, my, my mind went straight to, to Honolulu, oh, Texas. Yeah. So I'll share that with you sometime. Are you a, yeah. uh, would you consider yourself an early bird or a night owl? I'm an early bird. I'm up at, I'm up at 5.30 most of the time. Okay. Um, if you look back over the years, favorite place to play do you have one room that sticks out in your mind where it's like man that was the that was the best ever any if i if i if the money was all the same i'll make a blanket statement i'd rather play in five thousand seaters where everybody's sitting down it's just it's more it sounds better it's more fun it's easy to tell what the audience wants sure at festival setting all they want is everything yeah uh, everything make everything louder than everything else to play and and not, and it's all good. I mean that's, that's what they came for. But yeah, I would say smaller venues favorite thing. I, and I can't think of one in particular. I just can't. Fair enough. And I agree with you on that. I think that the intimate setting is far better from both a, a listener perspective and a player perspective because there's a there's a touch that you have with the audience when you're the musician. And then there's an intimate feel or a connection you have with the group when you're in a smaller intimate setting. You know, I've, I've seen shows at the Astrodome in Houston. It's like, what's personal about that, right? You're one of 80,000 people in this place. And, well, and to me, it does nothing for me from a musical I perspective. I, I find myself at a large shows looking at the big screens more than I do the act. Absolutely. And that's the yeah, same way with the, the the Houston livestock show and rodeo, you know, there's such a draw there and it's a wonderful event, but if you're going to see the performers, you're in a, you're, you're in a facility that holds, like I said, 80,000 people. The artist looks like an ant on stage. It's like, and, and you, and you do, you're looking up at the, at the, the jumbotron there trying to, I find myself. Yeah. I I paid this much to see somebody on TV. Exactly. That's exactly right. (laughs) Favorite song LaRue wise to play live at this point I mean we played the other one so many times I'd have to say um, one of those days was probably my favorite one to play okay. live now okay because it covers a lot of ground yep and if you were and I know these are all LaRue's babies it would be like calling your some of your babies ugly and no parent ever wants to do that but if you if you were to pick a favorite song by larue in your mind that sticks out as you know 
not not from a, a charting perspective yeah. or a likability perspective from your from your chair what would that song be i have a, i don't even know if the guys would know, know this i mean i obviously know the song but i don't know if they know my favorite there was a song uh i think it was last Safe baseball uh you know how those boys are mm-hmm I, re- I like that song. I just have uh, great memories of actually I had written it in seven four, believe it or not. So when we, when we recorded it, I had to modify the lick to fit a, a more friendly time signature. But, and I just, I, I and actually, the truth is I thought that, I really thought that was a hit. Okay. Wrong again. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that, but that, that's good to know. Yeah, are, that's one of my favorites. Are you formally trained, or do you play by ear, or is it a combination of both? It's, it's kind of a combination. I'm, I know what I'm doing. You know, I know the modes and scales and and and, and a large catalog of check chords and changes. I couldn't. I don't read. Worth it. I read. You know, I read trombone all those years, and I and if you give me enough time, I can read it. But I mean, it would take me, you know, it'd probably take me three hours to read a page of, especially <laughs> if it was Joe Bass or somebody like that. So yeah, basically, I'm semi-trained. <laughs> they say it'd take you an hour to make minute rice, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who would you say the number one influential musician or band was for, for Tony Hazelden? Oh, in our band? No, just in general. Well, it can be in your band or just of all the musicians you've ever encountered or seen or heard over your, over your span, who, who do you think sticks out as the most influential for you? If I had to pick a favorite guitar player, it would probably end up being Jeff Beck. Okay. You know, I mean, he doesn't sound like anybody else. He's not a shredder necessarily. He's, but he takes chances. He goes, he goes in directions that that are uh, totally uh, uh, contrary to, to uh, music. Uh, what what a normal uh, song would do. Sure. Yeah, I would say that he's 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 been a, a big influence. Um, you know. I guess there was ties to the Yardbirds there with him, right? Yeah, all the way from me from the very beginning. You mm-hmm. know, and all those albums. He's just uh, all the way back to uh, um, some of the name just escaped me, but green sleeves and all that. Oh yeah, some of those things. Yeah, just yeah. He's just uh, he's 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 technique and feel, but his technique is different from everybody. Feel is magnificent. So yeah, I love him. What advice would you give a young up and coming guitar player, somebody that's looking to learn the guitar but knows really nothing about it? What what would a you know, somebody of your caliber of player say to a young person or even an old person, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be yeah. young to learn the guitar. Right. But what would you say yeah. to somebody just starting out? I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about I'll tell you what I wish I had done. I learned a lot of songs. I had a good ear and I learned a lot of things, like Chet Atkins and Deep Purple and those kind of things. And no matter what you learn, Try to find out why they did it. And if you hear it, if you learn something, try to figure out. Because what happens, what you're trying to do is build a map to the fretboard. And it start, it start off as simple as you need to. Learn, learn a scale. Learn a C scale. And then, and I know it's boring and it doesn't sound like you're making music. But once you learn that, then learn it. 
to learn it in all five positions. And if you play some, there's a lot of things I learned. I've learned Chet Atkins songs just note by note. If I had gone back and said, well, why don't he do a D minor there? Right. Why don't he go from the D minor to the G7 and then end up back at C? Learn it to learn just learn why they did stuff. Yes, I learned. I could. I was able to play a lot, a lot of stuff that I didn't know why. Yeah, but if if I I think if I had learned why earlier, it would make a big difference. So I would say learn songs that you like to play, but then figure out why they happened that way. Why that why that changed? Well, if you figure out why, then you're opening so many doors for yourself oh, yeah. to be more creative and. And do so many more things than just pigeonholing yourself into knowing one thing about the guitar. And over the years, I feel like I, I missed the boat. You know, I, you know, I probably didn't ask why. And, you know, I'm an okay player. But in the grand scheme of things, with all these cats you're seeing on YouTube and whatnot, I mean, they're just yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal players. And, and they get it. They understand why they're doing what they're doing and how it all fits. And that's, that's taking it to a whole yeah. different level. You know, anybody can read a tablature and, and yeah. mimic something, but to understand, to, to, to dissect what works with what and can do that on the fly, that takes you to a whole different level, I think. Oh, yeah, and the more you do it, it's just like learning a lick. Some licks, some licks you have to play a hundred times to get close. Yep. You know, some licks, two, fifteen, you know, 10, 15 times you got it down. But then, then okay, then learn it at, in that position, then learn it in the next position. Every place you can possibly play that lick. All it is is you're building a map of the fretboard. Yep. So that, you know, if I take a right, I end up in Thibodeau. If I take a left, I end up in Homer. If I go straight, I go to Baton Rouge. It's exactly. just, all it is is a map. And then you learn the side roads and all that. And uh, and it's hard to do. It's boring, man. It's yeah. boring in the beginning. Well, you know, playing scales and that. I want to play a song, though. Yep. Good, play a song, but spend 30 minutes on a scale, too. Well, you have to do all those things to become proficient. And I think Steve Miller said it best years ago. You got to go through hell before you get to heaven. Right. I mean, and, and I think there's a lot of truth to that in a lot of things that we do, whether it's playing music or being a great football player or whatever. I mean, you have to start somewhere and you have to do all of the mundane things to, to as the building blocks to, to be better. Right. The fundamentals. Uh, yep. So thank you, Tony, for joining the show. I wish you and the fellas from LaRue continued success. I hope that the, uh, the, the pandemic, you know, continues to get better. So guys like Tony and the musicians out there can get back out in front of the fans and do what they do best. I ask the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. As always, make sure to follow Tony and all the guys of LaRue on social media. You can find the show on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, on Twitter at Backstage Pass PC, and on the website at BackstagePassRadio.com. Thank you again for joining me, Tony. It's been a, a great pleasure getting to share the stories of the road and all of the things that you've accomplished over your career. I want to encourage each of you guys to take care of each other and yourselves. And we'll see you right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. 
Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.